Welcome to the Pace and Freedom Podcast, now part of the Liberty Caster Network. I'm your host, James Pace. This is where real conversations happen with no labels and no judgment. Check out my social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Get the links in the description below. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Today, I am presenting the Libertarian presidential debate between Mark Whitney and Ken Armstrong along with my lovely co-moderator, Daniel Walker. Many of you have gotten the opportunity to watch it on YouTube. I thought it was an amazing debate, and now it's available on your podcatchers as well. You can listen to the whole thing while you're going to work, at work, cleaning your home. You don't have to watch it. It's available on audio on your Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, you name it. But before we get started, I want to talk about Cash App and how you can earn $5 for simply signing up using my link in the description. Sign up for free and get five bucks into your account. Then you can refer others and earn even more cash. With Cash App, you can easily transfer money to friends and family, make purchases with a free debit card, buy, sell stock on the stock market, and purchase, sell, and use Bitcoin. Again, simply sign up for free using my link in the description and get your $5 for free. Now, enjoy the debate. And recording. Awesome. <coughs> All right, so we're live, apparently. Let's hope so. Um, <laughs> And yeah, this is uh, Pace and Freedom podcast and my very first presidential debate ever. So that's uh, exciting. And I have with me Mark Whitney and Ken Armstrong, who are running for president for uh, on the Libertarian ticket, where well, they're seeking the nominee on the Libertarian ticket. And we have our Libertarian Party convention supposed to be coming up in Austin. We're still, did you guys hear anything? It's that canceled? Is it suspended? Is it online? Well, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good bet, Mark. Yeah. Um, they're talking about postponing it to July. I wish that uh, they had actually gotten together somehow and nominated somebody a month ago because that's really what's needed in this environment. Putting yeah, it that's, off. That's, that's exactly right. They're, they're, they're really crippling the, the party by not having the nominee named yet. Um, so pretty yeah. much just put all libertarians into a random randomizer and it pukes one out and, and just, just go. say the, there's your nominee. It's just <laughs> one of those years, you know? Yep. Well, let's hope uh, we get something because, you know, I'm kind of fearful of the uh, just the general elections being suspended because of this thing, even though the constitution calls for an election by law. You know, when has government ever really followed the Constitution? In well, the this, this president is not intimidated by the Constitution, that's for right. sure. I think that right. I think that they will happily have uh, the elections as normal, uh, knowing that voter turnout will be very low, which is uh, plays into the hands of incumbents, and it plays and contrives against people like ourselves. Right. So. Exactly right. With that said, we'll continue on, you know, libertarians, we always find the best ways of uh, continuing on and moving on using our intellect and uh, creativity. So that's why we have these debates. I know uh, Mark has been out there banging, trying to get 
into online debates. So has uh, Ken. I've watched a few of them, and they're always uh, entertaining, exciting, and uh, very educational. So we'll see if we can break that record here today. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's go ahead and move on. Uh, we're going to go a little bit quicker because we don't have Dan. Taxation is uh, is theft, Berman. I was hoping he would be on this debate, and we don't uh, have our Mexican candidate today. Yeah, <laughs> so he he hasn't showed up. Um, so we're Yo just. <laughs> yeah, I think Mark does too a little, right? Well, I you know I'm doing the best I can on English right now. I I, <laughs> I I push people away enough just when I speak English to say nothing in Spanish for God's sake. Oh my God. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, if you ever need a translator in either of your uh, campaigns, I'm available. I'm pretty there. We go. So, I could right. use a translator uh, in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go ahead and uh, get started with introductions. Uh, you'll both get three minutes each to uh, introduce yourselves and kind of give us a general uh, idea of your platforms. And uh, I'll signal with two fingers when you're making it through, uh, through halfway. And uh, once you guys are done, I'll let you guys know that uh, your time is up and we'll continue moving on. Sounds good? Fair enough. Sounds good. All right. Do you have anything else to add, Daniel? Nope. I think we're good to go. All right. Thanks. All right. Let's go ahead and get started with uh, Ken Armstrong. You got three minutes to give your opening statement. Well, hi, I am Ken Armstrong, armstrong2020.com. The first question that libertarians always want to ask me is, I never heard of you before. How long have you been a libertarian? Uh, I have been a libertarian since 1998, uh, and an active libertarian, I guess you'd say, since 2007. But admittedly, this is the first uh, office I've run for inside the party. I've uh, been more of a writer and speaker and that sort of thing for the last 20 years or so. Um, but I am the person who brings experience to the campaign, experience as a local elected official in a nonpartisan office in Honolulu County. As a federal official, I've uh, worked in Washington, D.C. I worked in the Clinton administration with access to the White House Situation Room. And, uh, and I've worked as a NATO base commander, uh, as a U.S. consul representative. I was uh, a, a rules of engagement advisor in the Bosnian War. And I've done non-government stuff, too. I've owned some small businesses. I have... Uh, uh, I've taught in college. I've been a newspaper columnist. So I, I've done a variety of things, and I bring that experience now to the table as a candidate for president of the United States. Very good. And let's go ahead and go with Mark Whitney. There you go. So Ken and I are both a certain age, so we've all done a variety of things. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur for 40 years. I started my first company, an advertising agency, when I was 21. I ran that for six years. I took everything I had, investigated, and, uh, invested in Ben and Jerry's franchises, and lost everything I had. 85 out of, out of the first 100 Ben and Jerry's franchisees uh, went broke. Uh, I lied to the bank to get a business loan. They gave me a couple of tax returns, weren't quite where they appeared to be. 
So I spent some years litigating with the federal government, with the IRS, the Department of Justice. I spent some time in federal prison uh, working by myself on a typewriter in a prison library as a high school graduate. I got my term of imprisonment declared unconstitutional, beat the Department of Justice like a rented mule three times on appeal. Most lawyers never beat them once on appeal. I talked the IRS down from a million dollar debt to 20,000. Uh, that took a few years of my life. So I spent, uh, spent my 20s actually violating the first rule of holes, which is when you're in a hole, stop digging. Uh, I spent my 30s digging out. In my 40s, I rebuilt. My 50s, I killed it. And in my 60s, I am committed to trying to make the Libertarian Party politically relevant. For the last 20 years, I've been a CEO of the Law.net Corporation. And as a CEO, my most important job is to be able to project the future 18 months out. It's an impossible job, but you do the best you can. And this moment that we're operating in right now, uh, this is what I've distilled it down to. This is the difference, in my opinion, between now and before the virus. Proximity has been disrupted. Proximity, think about that. That implicates physics, it implicates logistics, it implicates anything uh, where, uh, where you have a, uh, a room and there are seats nailed to the floor adjacent to each other. Uh, anything from a movie theater uh, to a hotel ballroom to a sports stadium uh, to colleges, any place where people gather, uh, I think for the next two years, uh, Zeke Emanuel, a bioethicist and uh, oncologist from Harvard, uh, predicts that we will no longer be able to have large gatherings until at least the fall of 2021. Uh, so it's an opportunity for the Libertarian Party to reboot and reset. And uh, because right now, the Libertarian Party has a perfect record, has a perfect record of not electing people. And uh, so we have an opportunity now to rethink why that is and to uh, start destroying that perfect record. That's why I'm here. All right, I apologize for that. <coughs> That's all right. So now we're gonna go into our questions and our moderator, Daniel, we'll start with the first question and um, we'll go from there. And we'll start with uh, Mark to answer first. Okay. I don't think I got a chance to formally introduce myself. My name is oh, Daniel <laughs> and I will be your co-moderator today. All right, Daniel. So our first question, with historically low poll numbers being brought in by libertarian presidential candidates, how do you plan to gain enough votes from both major parties in order to win a presidential election against Donald Trump? You want, you want uh, okay, I'll go first. Uh, so it's gonna be an uphill battle this year. Uh, like we were saying before the show, I wish the Libertarian National Committee would just get together and nominate someone because every day that goes by, is a day that is a, is a bad day for this party. Uh, uh, anybody who's fighting from behind for anything in this environment has an uphill battle. So my original plan, right, when I announced was, hey, I'm the guy who, who has been spending 15 years talking to Democrats and Republicans, 15 years doing stand-up. I can get on late night, uh, light up the stage, maybe become an A-list celebrity for four months. A bunch of money comes in. We can use it to train downhill uh, down, down, down ballot candidates and, uh, and get some activists and grow the party and get some people elected. I think that plan is out the window. Uh, late night is being done on Zoom right now. Uh, so 
uh, it's going to be it's going to be a very tough year uh, for us to uh, get attention. There's no way we're going to get the number of votes that we got uh, the last time around because uh, we'll be lucky to have ballot access in 35 states because we need to be able to go door to door to get signatures. So uh, uh, that puts a premium on someone who can really light up the camera. I think on that person. Uh, but again, I would be happy, uh, as I said before the show, if the Libertarian National Committee would put all the party members into a randomizer and whoever comes out number one, just make that person the nominee. That would be the pragmatic thing to do in this environment. And Ken's right. question. Well, first of all, uh, we have to get smarter about the way that we campaign. One of the problems with the Libertarian Party is that we are the party of principle, and we think our principles are enough, because inside of our echo chamber, it all makes such great sense to us. And what we watch is that the, the, the two big corporations that are running the country right now tend to, uh, to establish tribalism and fear as the basis for electing their candidates. You, you, it's... Uh, you either love their candidate or you or, or you you hate the other candidate enough to elect them. And so the fear and the angst is what has actually been electing people in the country. And we're trying to appeal to people on uh, principles and intellect and and uh, simple logic and, uh, you know, uncomfortable things like the Constitution. All of those things are important to us and we need to we need to stick with the principles of the Libertarian Party. But we also need to tap All right, thank A little bit of a technical problem. Yeah. yeah he, does I got that. he does that sometimes. <laughs> he freezes up. <laughs> yeah, he does that sometimes. He gets nervous on stage. <laughs> Yeah, it's One just of the nerves. hazards of It's just nerves. He'll settle down. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll pick up on what Ken was saying about about getting smarter. You know, if you go to the Hang on, party, hey, here, you back, you Ken? Am I back? I don't, I don't back. know what happened. We're back. Yeah, you, okay. you, you <laughs> froze. You froze. I told them sometimes you get nervous <laughs> and you freeze. You know, that yeah. happens to me here in Washington. I freeze. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I... It, what I was saying is we, we do need to tap into that angst and we do need to, to, to recognize that the American voters, as much as the principles really are important to us, we also need to show them that tyranny is an opposing force that we need to come against. And we need to show that as a genuine battle to the American people. All right, very well. Uh, Danielle, do you have any follow-on questions to that? To either um, no, I think I'm good on that one. Okay. Uh, let's uh, move on with the second question. And sorry, I also got disconnected there for a second, so I didn't get to hear uh, all of Mark Whitney's answers, but uh, we'll continue on anyways. So as president of the United States, your powers are limited by the Constitution to the administration of executive branch. If elected president, how do you plan to work with a dual party legislative branch and move forward with a libertarian form of government? And I'll start with uh, Ken. Well, sometimes you need to, to, to uh, 
use the the velvet glove you know um, it, it's it's nice and soft on the outside but it packs a punch um, I, I think that it's important to know how to work with people and I've got a track record of working with people across the spectrum of of politics you need to be able to show them where they can create a win for themselves and their constituency and so forth. And, and that's a real thing. But there also comes a time when it's appropriate to use the veto, to use the bully pulpit, to show a, a bright light on what's really happening in Washington and let the American people make the decision based on real information. In fact, in this crisis that we've got going on right now, the number one thing that Washington isn't doing is they're not getting us tested so that we have the information we need. So far, only 1% of the population has been tested. And, uh, and, and so Washington is withholding information from the people. If we shine a bright light on what Washington is doing, uh, they will be forced to do the will of the people. Very well. And go ahead, Mark. Yeah, so Ken mentioned velvet glove. I'm more of a brick bat guy. Uh, I think that uh, if you imagine a scenario where a libertarian actually got elected president, uh, that, that person is going to have multiple assassination attempts on them right away. Donald Trump being elected president would be nothing by comparison. And uh, so uh, the authority that the president has has been given to presidents by the people, uh, unreviewable, uncheckable authority in Article 2 to uh, declassify state secrets. So I think the threat of that is enough to get the legislature to play ball on some things. You think about all the anti-Christian things we know that the, uh, that the Democrats or Republicans have done. Uh, Ed Snowden revealed that uh, the government was mining all of our data. Uh, back in uh, the early 70s, um, the 70s version of Ed Snowden was Daniel Ellsberg. And the fourth article of impeachment against Richard Nixon the fourth count on that indictment was that Nixon had conspired with a bunch of thugs to break into the filing cabinet of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist. That filing cabinet is sitting in the Smithsonian Institution, and you can see the crowbar uh, dents in the cabinet where they tried to break into a single filing cabinet. When Barack Obama was president, and it was revealed by Ed Snowden that the government was breaking into all of our filing cabinets because Barack Obama happened to be president at the time, Nobody said anything. In fact, the extent the media said anything, it was to cheerlead the data mining of all of our files. That's the environment libertarians are trying to compete in. And that's why I don't think velvet gloves work and you need to use the brick bat. Very good. Any uh, follow-on questions to that, Daniel? Mm, no. <clears throat> all right. Let's move on. Go ahead with uh, the third question. Okay. Question number three. Number three, moving along. Um, in light of everything that's going on with COVID-19 right now, if this persists, how would you ensure that personal freedoms are maintained while at the same time limiting the spread of viruses such as this in order to prevent unnecessary deaths and the overwhelming of critical medical systems? And we'll start with Mark. So I think it's, uh, uh, you know, if you think about the fact that 20 years after the events of September 11, 2001, we're all taking our shoes off at the airport like a bunch of idiots. That is the political environment that we're operating in. Uh, I raised my kids in a, uh, 
uh, until they were about 13. They were about 13 and 15 when we moved. But I raised my kids in this little Ivy League community in New England. And uh, I can easily imagine the parents in this exclusive little community uh, wanting a pandemic-free environment for their children. I can imagine the end of high school sports. I can imagine these parents not wanting their kids to be exposed to the secretions of other children. Uh, I can imagine all of these things. I can imagine a, 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 real, a real drastic change in our society. Um, the, question, the question, in a way, ignores the political reality that we're in, which is that in California, where the 7-Elevens are open and the beaches are closed, uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor right now, is polling with an approval rating of 83%. Again, this is the environment that we're operating in. So I've been saying throughout my campaign that we libertarians, you know, we can have a philosophy of voluntarism, uh, volunteerism. We can have that philosophy, but it sucks as a political strategy. A political strategy is you look at the market and the market agrees with us 75% in the trade war, drug war, terror war. Don't spend money you don't have. The market agrees with us on these things. And these are the things we should be focused on. Um, you know, you got libertarians out there licking doorknobs to prove a point during the virus, threatening to shoot the virus. Uh, that doesn't really help. Uh, and uh, the virus is obviously a real thing. And I think if it wasn't for government, if there was no government, I think uh, a lot of us having access to science and media and medical professionals would be doing a lot of the same things we are now. I don't know about Ken, but I am very much persuaded uh, by doctors and nurses filling out their wills and being afraid to go to work. All right, Ken. Well, you know, this is actually kind of up my alley. I was the director of healthcare quality assurance for the Coast Guard. Uh, I uh, was, pardon me, I was nominated as federal executive of the year in uh, in Los Angeles, Long Beach, for my my work in disaster preparedness for the Port of Los Angeles. I I, I know a little bit about how the federal government should be responding to a disaster. And rule number one is always collect information. And this is the one thing that our government is letting us down on. We've got 1% of the population, 3 million people, a little bit over 3 million, tested so far uh, with, to, to find out who's really got this virus. There's two tests available. One is uh, the active virus test. That's the swab in the back of the throat. The other is the antibody test, which is a little... Uh, a, a little uh, prick blood draw, don't say anything, Mark. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, you the, know who you're talking to, right? Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, right. I know. Yeah. I, I, I comedy club boy, back. comedy club boy. That, that, that's okay. Anyway, the, the thing that we need to be doing is we need to be providing the baseline information to the public, to the medical professionals, to everybody. We're not even doing that. And you can't tell me that if we can afford to shut the economy down to a $1 trillion loss in gross domestic product, if we can pan out $2 million of borrowed money that we don't even have to ease people into their bankruptcies, it doesn't make sense that we can't find room in our industrial engine to crank out the test kits to find out who's sick and who's not so that we can get this country going again. Yeah, there was a study out of uh, Stanford that came out this week where they studied 3,000 people in, uh, in uh, Santa Clara. 
And uh, the study concludes, this is, I, this is probably the best, everyone agrees this is probably the best study so far. The study concludes that, that this COVID-19 is way more contagious than originally thought, but way less deadly, uh, a death rate of about two-tenths of 1%. So, All right. I'm not uh, sure what you do with that information, but that's, but that's, that's kind of the best information available right now. As a follow-up, um, is it okay? Did you have a follow-up question, James? I did, but I think uh, with my next question, uh, I will still need to follow up with, with what I got. So go ahead. And we have time, so. Okay. Um, I'd ask both of you, but we'll start with Mark. Um, I'm sure you guys are aware that certain people are protesting the stay-at-home orders right now. How do you all feel about that, given Libertarian Party's views on personal freedoms? Um, I know a lot of people are really upset, but we also want to make sure to keep the numbers down, um, try to flatten the curve, keep our medical system from being overwhelmed. I want to know how you guys feel about um, these protests that are going on. Well, I'm a big fan of civil disobedience. I think the, uh, the protest in Michigan was brilliant. Uh, they did it while in their cars. So they managed to organize a protest without actually, uh, you know, uh, they, they considered the fact that they could be radioactive. They considered the fact that they could infect others and they secured themselves in their vehicles and they formed a roadblock to say, hey, uh, are you sure you've thought this through? Uh, they're reminding their government that they're out there, that they're paying attention. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they're dealing, as we all are, dealing with the reality that uh, there, I mean, you know, I, I've spent the vast majority of the last 15 years holed up in my studio. This is sort of normal life for me, but there are, you know, tens of millions of our fellow citizens who are literally right now making the choice between clean oxygen and money. Um, people who are working in grocery stores right now, they're getting paid a little extra to work there, but on their way to work, if they turn on the radio or if they're listening to news on their phone, uh, the news is only go to the grocery store when you really have to. Um, you know, that's not coming from the government, that's coming from medical professionals. So you got people going to work every day in environments that the rest of us are told to stay away from. Uh, you know, doctors are, are paid very well to go to work. You know, a lot of them make 40 or $50,000 a month, but pe or people working for minimum wage with a $2 uh, extra bonus uh, in environments that we know are not safe right now. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's we're in for a long haul here. I mean, we're starting to read articles that talk about uh, uh, having, uh, having this virus did not necessarily immunize you from having it again. And when, when there's a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, uh, what happens when there's a mutation? I mean, there's all kinds of uh, uh, amazing uh, uh, disruption going on here. Uh, I've never seen a, a, a situation so fluid. And my perception of reality changes on a daily basis. I've written about 30 commercials for my campaign in the last uh, two weeks. I haven't produced any of them because reality is changing literally by the day. I'd like to allow uh, Ken to go ahead and get three minutes as well to answer that same question. Well, first of all, <clears throat> do I support the folks who are protesting? 
Three times in my life I, as a military officer and twice as an elected official, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution. And, and you know, one of the inconvenient truths of the Constitution is that people have the right to peacefully assemble and to protest, uh, whether we like what they're saying or doing or not. And uh, one thing that I will say about the protests, the ones where people have protested on foot and come together and and uh, and and sort of ganged up on Capitol buildings. Uh, that's, a, in in my opinion, a violation of the non-aggression principle because even if they're not endangering people's lives, they're certainly psychologically endangering people right now. I think we do have to we have to be careful right now about the perception of what we're doing. But I agree with Mark about the motorists. Uh, you know the the uh, the motor blockade in Michigan and uh, and those things. Uh, I I think people not just uh, can protest, but I think they really need to protest. They really need to do that. But you know, Mark is right. With the the information that we've got is changing constantly. The Santa Clara study. I I don't believe in the scientific uh, sample of the group, uh, but the but the study itself shows that we know very little about this disease and we're That's not right. doing a good job of collecting more information and making that information available to the public. So step number one needs to be, we need to be getting information out there to the public so they can protest for and against the right thing. Thank really you. Good. All right, so we'll go ahead and move on with the uh, fourth question and we'll start, who answered first last time, Daniel? <laughs> I lost track. Uh, I want to say it was Mark. Okay, so we'll go with Ken to answer first. Uh, during mandatory stay-at-home orders, many families have experienced the advantages of homeschooling technologies, and in some states, they have continued public schooling uh, in the homes through Zoom and other group communication technologies. If elected president, how would you reform public education at the federal level? How would I reform public education at the federal level? I'd get public education out of the federal level. Next question, please. No, seriously. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't believe that public education is a federal question. I'm a firm believer in uh, the best government is the most local government. Uh, I think there's a proper role for the federal government in, in ensuring the, the flow of information and ensuring that goods and services can, can flow between the states and that we have a national defense. That pretty much describes everything the federal government should be doing. And education is not on that list. So the first thing I would do is I would get the federal government out of the education business and let parents and local communities make those decisions for themselves. And by the way, this may be a favor that COVID-19 is doing for us. I said when Trump shut down the government in 2018 that he did it badly, but there could be some good to come of it. This is a horrible thing. I don't want to make light of it. People are dying and people are suffering, but there can be some good to come out of it and changing our education system might be one of those things. All right, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I'm someone whose life is defined by finding you know great opportunity in in great adversity um, as a result of the situation I mentioned earlier where I had to you know, litigate in a criminal case with the federal government, I became so good at it that 
Uh, for the last 20 years, I've literally been, my company sells the law to lawyers. Uh, so uh, uh, one of the hugest obvious opportunities uh, that is coming out of this is in this new normal. Uh, it's not just students working from home, it's adults working from home. And I think there's an enormous opportunity here uh, for people to reassess. I, of course, agree with Ken uh, that, uh, you know, edu education is a state issue. It's not. Uh, the federal government gets involved uh, for purposes of political control. And uh, so they collect a lot of money. I mean, I send three times as much money to the feds as I send to the state of California. And if anything, you would think that would be the other way around. But there's so much money said to, sent to the feds that they can impose, you know, mandates on the states. They say, we're going to give you a bunch of money to help, you know, build new schools in your state or whatever. Uh, but you have to agree that everyone's going to take this standardized test so that we can measure outcomes this one way. Uh, you know, I grew up in a little state of Vermont where the state capital is 7,000 people. So if the federal government is not involved in education, and the people of Vermont, there's only 500,000 people there, if they want to have competition and diversity in education, if they want to have uh, more choices, which, you know, every, all parents want more choices, it's much easier for them to lobby their state legislature and get the changes made to the law that make that possible. And as a parent of an autistic kid who homeschooled for several years, it was very onerous uh, meeting state education uh, standards, which were de facto federal standards, uh, while doing what I knew was best for my son and what he needed. Um, so I'm a big fan of competition in all things. I think competition makes everything better. Uh, and that is especially true in areas of education. All right. Um, so I have a follow on question to that and I'll let it, uh, and I'll let both of you answer it cause we have plenty of time. And my question is I've been asked, uh, as a libertarian believing and removing government as much as possible, uh, from all these different aspects that we, we have in our lives that we just, grown accustomed to like education, having our kids go to public schools um, for free and with a libertarian mod um, model of government hands off, that would be a huge change for people that maybe are not going to be happy about it for some. Will a more uh, Switzerland type of uh, deal where they slowly remove public schools and allowing for vouchers to let kids go to private schools be a option uh, and transition to a more libertarian government. Go ahead, Mark. So it's interesting. We already uh, have uh, a multi-tier public school system. So, so uh, the town that I uh, raised my kids in early in their lives, Norwich, Vermont, the principal of that public school uh, was nominated, was the principal of the year. I didn't even know that was a thing. But all the kids that go to that school are sons and daughters, with the exception of mine, <laughs> are sons and daughters of uh, Dartmouth College professors and doctors who work at the hospital associated with the college. So you couldn't, you couldn't pay $50,000 for a private school that was better than that public school. Here where I live in San Diego, just up the road, we have a school called Canyon Crest Academy. It is a public school, but it's a public school in name only. Because in order to have your kid go there, 
you have to be able to buy a house in that neighborhood. And we have in California something called Mellow Roos, and that's named after two state legislators who passed a law that says if your party homes and you come in and you build a new development, you put up one of these turnkey communities as a Trader Joe's and a Pan, 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 Pandera Bread and, and a Rite Aid in it and all these beautiful $2 million houses, uh, there's going to be an additional five or $600 a month that you pay in property taxes for several years to live there. So that is a de facto private school uh, uh, tuition. Uh, so so we, we already have this in a way built in where, you know, uh, families who have a net worth of a million dollars or more and are able to move into these neighborhoods are able to have many of the benefits uh, that they would have in private education through public education. I would rather see that I would rather see that statutory scheme completely dismantled and, uh, and have a system where the best schools rise to the top because the numbers of students uh, uh, who are able to be very successful are much greater than the small number who are going to these very exclusive schools now. So this would contrive in favor of people who are being boxed out of the best schools now and, and that is a shame. And, and so that would incubate more competition. Uh, and and, and we, it also could be uh, normalized that say 25 or 30% of the kids in the world are doing online learning on, on their schedule. And that the parents are looking at their kids as individuals as saying, you know, my autistic son at age nine, he decided that uh, he wanted to be a figure skater. And this is a kid who I just had to follow his aptitudes uh, because he had some other errors where, you know, he couldn't function in the normal school system at a high level. Uh, and then after a week of watching news about John F. Kennedy flying his plane into the ocean and dying, Chris wanted to become a pilot at age 12. Um, so, you know, th these were things that I was able to do with him. And the word education should be the most liberally construed term in the world. It's so annoying to see what we have. Ken? Well, I'm running for president of the United States. I'm not running for governor of Washington or, or any of those things. So I have to say that my answer to that question specifically would be what I as a private citizen would like to see. And I agree with Mark. I, I believe there needs to be choice in, in the marketplace. But as president of the United States, I need to look at the history of why the federal government is involved in education at all. And that follows the simple rule of follow the money. Uh, when uh, the teachers unions started becoming powerful, when they started lobbying Washington heavily, when special interests started stacking up for, uh, for a particular model of education, that's when Washington got into the education business. It was all about money and influence and power. It was never about what's best for the American people. So my answer is simply, we need to leave that up to the communities. At the community level, people need to be able to decide what works best for them. You will find some places where the K-12 model works wonderfully. Uh, you know, in, in, in New Hampshire, in Exeter, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a great model for one of the great uh, private schools in the country. But it's not everybody's best model, and we need to leave that to the local communities. All right. Danielle, go ahead and ask your next question. Hey, 
Um, with many businesses being permanently shut down, especially small businesses, um, and people now out of work indefinitely, how would you plan to rebuild the economy in the wake of COVID-19? And we can start uh, with on this one. Which one did we start with? I'm sorry, I you, lost you. Can. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. I figured you're going to tell everyone how to rebuild the economy. Can go in 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 200 simple words or something. No, <laughs> you know it is a it's a complex issue, but this is an opportunity as well. We're we're uh, there's huge damage being done at the mom and pop level of government right now. At the local level, small businesses are going to be suffering a lot more than the large corporate, uh, you know, Walmart and, and Costco and such that can absorb a certain amount of loss and, uh, and, and maybe have to shut down a percentage of stores in order to make it through. But, but they'll make it through. At the mom and pop level, we're going to have to have some focus. We're going to have to restructure our tax system. We're going to have to, to open up the economy in a way that stops regulating the, the local business people out of the marketplace, uh, allowing the economy to freely seek its own level and not giving special advantages, huge tax breaks to build a Walmart in town that, that put uh, small business people out of business. All of those models that favor the large corporations, we need to do away with the corporatism in the country, get back to allowing entrepreneurial, you know, Mark is a friend of mine and I love the guy and, and he's doing well right now because the country allowed an entrepreneur with a high school education and a prison record to use the smarts in his head to get something done. I salute that, I'm a, I'm a fan of Mark's. And, and we need to open the doors and let more Americans have that same success story. I appreciate that, Ken. You know, I, I'm consulting with a lot of friends right now who are, when this happened, I reached out to, you know, friends and family and, and people on social media. And I offered to provide free consultation to them because I am an expert at, you know, finding opportunity in the most adverse situations and making quick decisions. Um, there's a lot that I learned uh, th through that process. And, um, but at the end of the day, one of, one of the traps that we all are at risk of, as citizens of falling into is that, is that the government has something for us here. Uh, and, and I don't want to sound cold-blooded about it, but it, it really comes down to the individual uh, to right now, I think right now, the best way to operate right now is to assume that this situation that we're in right now is going to be your reality for at least the next year. So just assume that that's going to be the case. Don't pretend otherwise. Assume that's going to be the case. And if you assume and believe that's going to be the case, what are you going to do starting today to change that reality? So let me give you an example of what I would be doing if I had to, right? So if my company is a company that operates on the internet, so it's fine. But if that was not the case, I'm confident that beginning this week, I could make $5,000 a week consulting with people about how to build studios like I'm in right now because everybody needs a nice studio. There's a subset of people who want a great state-of-the-art studio right now, and they've got money to spend. And I've gone through you know, tens of thousands of dollars of equipment and mistakes being made to be able to produce a look like what you're seeing right here, to be able to produce a great look and a great sound. And a lot of people look at my setup, they've already reached out to me and said, you know, how did you do that? So that tells me there's a market there. 
Um, so, so I would challenge everyone to think, and, and I brought this with me today. You, you may not be able to see it. I'm gonna hold it out to the camera as best I can. But this is, a, this, is a, this is a set of tongs, and it's made out of pine. I think it's, it may be made out of hardwood, I don't know. But let me tell you what this, this little thing does. This is the best little invention. What this does is it allows you to reach into your toaster without killing yourself and pull the toast out before it burns. It's just a set of wooden tongs. And uh, so anybody could have invented this, but, some, but somebody did and nobody else did. So people have time right now to sit around. What is your version of wooden tongs that you're gonna invent to put food on the table? Because we're gonna be in this situation for the next year. The government has nothing for you. It's a false promise. And my message to all of my friends is don't fall into the trap of, of thinking they're gonna help you. And, and for God's sake, do not go into debt uh, trying to save your business thinking that everything's gonna be better in 90 days because that's not gonna happen. Uh, probably your next best step is to talk to your bankruptcy lawyer and start planning your bankruptcy a year out so that you can transfer assets and come out as soft minutes. as possible on the other side. There you go. There you go. Yep. One second over three minutes. Good job, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. There, there, that's within the, that's within the Toastmaster range of time. There, there you go. give you a 30 <laughs> second cushion. Yeah. Yep. So, um, Yeah. I think uh, we have some, you have a uh, audience question, right, Daniel? And I we'll go ahead and have Mark start with that one. Um, this is a question from Clark. Uh, he says, would you be willing to cut all federal aid to Israel, an ethno state that is actively undertaking religious expansionism on the grounds that taxpayer money being sent to such a regime violates constitutional freedom of religion and separation of church and state. Yeah, so I wouldn't limit it to Israel. Um, I'm a big fan of nation states, uh, of, of the people who live within nation states figuring out how to get their government to respond the way they want it to respond. I think the lesson of the last 20 years of aggressive war has been that, uh, you know, United States foreign policy is, it can best be described in one word, bombs. And we use, our, we use our political and economic influence to uh, you know, get countries to behave the way we, we would like them to behave. And that's wrong. We wouldn't tolerate that from other countries doing it to us. So I think we need to uh, model that. Um, I'm the only citizen, uh, by the way, uh, to have sued a president to end participation of US armed forces in a foreign civil war. I sued Barack Obama when he participated uh, in the Libyan civil war. Uh, using NATO. NATO is commanded by U.S. officers. And um, so I'm, I'm not a fan of getting involved in the business of other countries. Um, I, I, I am aware, I note that the questioner limited the question to Israel, uh, but it's not a question of Israel. It's a question of, of, uh, of whether or not it's appropriate for the United States to be trying to influence the outcome of other nation states, and my position is that it is that it is it's okay to do it uh, through the influence of ideas, but I don't think you should be throwing around money and bombs uh, to try to get people to behave the way you think they should behave. I think that's for the people in those nations to influence their governments to do that. So it looks like we lost Ken. I, I think we lost him. Oh, so. all right. Well, then here, then I guess the next question is for me. <laughs> 
Let me see if I can get him back real quick. But in the he meantime, is, he, he is in Abe Lincoln's cabin, you know. That's where he <laughs> right? is. Yeah. <laughs> yep. The internet service is not the greatest there, huh? I, I you wouldn't think, think Lincoln so. Lincoln have Wi-Fi? I don't think log <laughs> cabins are known for 5G, but yeah, I could be wrong. Right. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, we get him back. Ba, 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 da, ba, 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 da, ba. Oh, okay, you're serious. back, Ken. <laughs> Let me, uh... I, okay, I apologize, folks. It's, uh, you know, one of the things we're seeing right now is uh, we talked about it earlier. The network is just way, way overcast right, right. now. Yes. Do you have uh, 5G in that log cabin, Ken? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I'm, I'm working on my, uh, on my Wi-Fi out of, outside of the cabin right you now. You got but, your, uh, your uh, dial-up account going there. Uh, yeah, almost. Right. It's, it's about that. <laughs> Windows 95. Yeah. All right. Did you... Yeah, uh, did did you have the question still, Ken? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. I, 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 I didn't hear all of Mark's reply. I'm going to have to watch the, the instant replay. It was brilliant. On. It was brilliant. <laughs> you know, and I have no doubt. Uh, as, as I think the viewers can, can figure out that Mark and I are not far apart on the issues. Uh, the, the only real issue is that I'm much more brilliant and he's much better looking. So, you know. <laughs> I just clean up better. That's all. I yeah, we have to better. work those things out. Uh, in in terms of the question about uh, about Israel, and and frankly, I, I'm not sure I accept all of the premise of the question. Uh, you know, we've got a we've got a, a tinderbox over there in the in the Middle East of opposing forces, some that have sworn to annihilate others, and et cetera, et cetera. I think the the bottom line is that we need to be using uh, diplomacy as our first level of approach in the world instead of military force. I'm a Jeffersonian in my approach to the world. In his inaugural address, he said that America should be, uh, should be about peace, about commerce, and about good neighborship with, with other nations on the planet. And that commerce thing is really the linchpin of the whole thing. If we can That's create right. a flow of commerce around the world, then it's, it, there's less opportunity and less need to be shooting at each other. But the other thing is that it does give us a great deal of leverage when we want to use the diplomatic solution. Right now, I, I heard Mark say it, and it's true. We go to bombs as our first solution. And as a military guy, I got to tell you, firefighters hate fire. Good military officers hate military action. And, and we don't want to be putting our young people in harm's way just because some idiot politician can't think of a diplomatic solution to a problem. Very good, Ken. Uh, do you have a follow-up question to that, Daniel? No, I don't. All right. I have a question from Robert. Is government a necessary evil in a disaster situation? And what does a libertarian president do to respond and I'll go to Ken first. Okay. Well, yeah, there is a there's a role for government in all kinds of circumstances, and disaster is certainly not the least of those. The problem is that the role of government is not to put its boot on the neck of the people. The, the role of government should be equipping the people to respond to the situation. Where necessary, using 
uh, collected resources from from maybe other places. For example, uh, when we have fires here in the Pacific Northwest, the government brings resources from all over the country to focus on on putting out that fire, and that's a good use of collected resources because the the people who are having the problem need help. But but we don't always need to. To, it's like the national stockpile of masks. Now we're relying on a national stockpile that wasn't even really there because it got depleted and not replaced and all that. That's the problem with relying on government to get something done. We need to rely on the, the free flow of goods and services. And the role of government is to make sure that that can happen. Two things government should be doing in a crisis, in every crisis. One, get the information to the people. Two, make sure that the free flow of goods and services is, is safe and, and stable. And beyond that, the, the role only comes in where it's absolutely necessary for a collected response. Very well. Mark? So the answer uh, at a macro level is yes, government is a necessary evil. I'm not an anarchist. And I, uh, we the people, when we wrote the Bill of Rights, we decided that, that having the evil of government was better than the evil of not having free speech, better than the evil of not being able to decide whether you go to church or not, better than the evil of, of having uh, gangs control who you associate with and who you don't associate with, better than the evil of not having as a birthright, of not reserving as a birthright the right to keep and bear arms. So that is the whole reason that we created uh, our federal constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, it says in the Declaration of Independence to secure these rights, governments are created. So it was to secure uh, the rights that we decided were sacrosanct. Uh, we decided it would be a greater evil for us to not have the guarantee of this short list of fundamental uh, rights reserved for us, to not have these rights uh, guaranteed. So we create a government to ensure. And an example I've been giving lately that seems to be very clear to people is that if you, Danielle, decide that you want to have a house full of guns and all 300 million of your fellow citizens are against you, the Second Amendment commands me as president to defend you, Danielle, against the mob. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, the First and Fourteenth Amendment are tolerant. Uh, they are written, they, they sound intolerance. Uh, they're, they're, it's all about tolerance. It's about tolerating the difference in religions, which is why we don't have Muslims and Jews fighting in the streets in the United States. And that is a beautiful thing. So there are many things uh, within our Bill of Rights that, that work. Uh, one is which Ken mentioned, uh, even though I have a felony conviction, just based on the fact that I'm a citizen, you know, I'm able to have a business selling the law to lawyers. Uh, and that is because of the rights we reserve, our natural rights, our birthrights, if you will, uh, that we reserve uh, when we wrote our constitution. We're the only nation state in the history of the world that's had a system like this, uh, where these rights are reserved as a matter of birth. Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, uh, that it has hurt the Libertarian Party a lot uh, to not embrace these documents. This party is, has half the number of dues-paying members that it had when I was most active between 1995 and 2005. And I believe that can be traced to social media 
and the fact that the message of anarchists, the philosophy of anarchists, uh, has come to define our party in the minds of many. So I don't think it's a, that people haven't heard the message. I think people have heard it and rejected it. And that's one of the reasons that I'm involved in the party now is to try to make us, uh, I think I, I share the sentiments of anarchists, uh, but I do not think it's a political philosophy. I think it's simply a philosophy. And that a political philosophy is ending the war on trade, drug terror, don't spend money you don't have. That's a political philosophy, it's transactional. And it's something you can take to people and they go, yeah, that makes sense. All right, really good answers. And so that's all the questions we have. Uh, we'll go into closing statements. And um, without uh, Dan here, I think we can give a little bit of leeway. Um, I had scheduled for five minutes each for a closing statement. So if you feel that you need a little extra time, uh, we'll add another three minutes uh, into those five minutes if you need it. But um, five minutes is what I had. So um, if you want, we can do three extra minutes or do you think five minutes is fair? How, yeah, how about, can I propose that we do five and, and, and then three so that we can kind of toss it back and forth to each other a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. Can you, can you ignorance? <laughs> Remember the, uh, <laughs> the Dan Aykroyd, Jane Curtin thing. See, now I'm revealing my age. On yep. 60 minutes, that was yeah. the whole thing. And I'm re revealing mine because I knew what you meant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, when I was uh, setting up these guidelines and stuff, I, I constantly reminded myself, too, that I'm hosting a libertarian uh, debate. So rules yeah. kind of don't always uh, apply. So Yeah. So I'm going to do 30 minutes. So get comfortable. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we'll start with, let's see. Um, Mark, go ahead and we'll just start with the five minutes and go ahead and give your closing statement. Yeah, I'm not sure I'll need five minutes. Look, I think, uh, I wanna, I'll, I think I've made a lot of my views known. Um, I think this is an opportunity we have uh, as a party to decide what we want the future to look like for our party. I think politics as we know it has been suspended the way everything else has been suspended. Uh, we, we don't know exactly how it's gonna end uh, but we live in a world right now, and I want you to think about this carefully. When the Democratic National Committee, led by uh, Barack Obama behind the scenes, when they circled the wagon around Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden is a man who has obvious dementia. He's barely coherent. So when they chose to circle the wagons around Joe Biden, they circled the wagons around somebody they know cannot win. So the Democratic National Committee literally just chose to reelect, to, to actually endorse Donald Trump for reelection over choosing Bernie Sanders, who was a much more viable candidate in terms of just being minimally coherent. That's the world we live in right now where Donald Trump is running unopposed. John Odermatt co commented on one of my posts last night. Donald Trump is running unopposed. That's literally the world we live in. I think, unfortunately, this year, libertarians are not going to have the opportunity to take advantage of that, of that opportunity because we're limited to meetings like this. Joe Biden can't even get press right now. Um, and uh, so uh, I, hope that, uh, I hope that we can use this opportunity to reflect as an institution, the Libertarian Party. Um, I want to read some numbers to you off the Libertarian Party Wikipedia page. Uh, that I've got in front of me. Uh, the number of libertarians in the United States Senate, 
zero. Number of libertarians in the House of Representatives, zero. Number of libertarian governors, zero. Uh, number of uh, libertarians in state legislatures, uh, zero. Uh, when I was a libertarian between 95 and 2005, there were several uh, state legislators in office. Today, that's not true. How can that be the case, given the efficient distribution of social media? What does that say? That we have uh, uh, social media rewards uh, good ideas. It rewards people who show up on a regular basis. It rewards alternative thinking in many ways. So how can it be, given the efficient distribution of social media, that our party has half the dues-paying members that it had between 1995 and 2005, how can that be? And I would suggest that uh, it is because uh, we have become a philosophy, a, a party of philosophy, but not a party of politics. Uh, we obsess on uh, detestable trolls like Ayn Rand. Have you ever seen Ayn Rand in, a, in an interview? There's an interview of Ayn Rand on the internet where Phil Donahue interviewed her in 1976. And she's one of the most detestable, unlikable human beings ever to walk the face of the earth. She's like one of these little munchkins from The Wizard of Oz. And she's condescending and intolerant. And she got the same reception from Phil Donahue's audience at Madison Square Garden that I got from Florida Libertarians. I mean, they just sat on their hands for 45 minutes. And uh, so I think, I think it, is, it is quite, uh, I think it can be argued, reasonably argued, that the message that we're communicating uh, as a political matter, not a as a philosophical matter, as a political matter, I think it can be argued that that message has been heard and that it's been rejected. And I don't think we have to rethink our principles, but we have to learn to act uh, politically intelligent when we're running in elections. And and I would and I would hope that more members of the party would embrace that and and not think that we are somehow. Uh, that people like myself who are, who are trying to be politically intelligent and trying to appeal to our fellow citizens who agree with us at a rate of 75 or 80 percent on issues, that we can go out and end the war on drugs, end the war on terror, end the trade war, stop spending money we don't have, that we can do those things if we can get libertarians elected. But if we operate in a, in a bubble where we just say, well, we want to get rid of all government and everyone's going to just volunteer, you know what, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. There's no precedent for it. It's never been a thing. There are always going to be strong people uh, who, who take over things. There's always going to be government, whether you call it government or not. There are always going to be people who assert themselves. And uh, I'm excited about the opportunities that we have to rethink some of the ways that we've been uh, messaging to people. And I'm here to help try, try to provide some leadership on that. MarkWhitney.com is my website. Most of the drama surrounding the 2020 Libertarian Party presidential contest plays out on Facebook. Again, markwhitney.com. If you want to send me an email, I will write you back. Mark at markwhitney.com. Thanks. All right. Ken, go ahead. Well, you know, one of the problems with, uh, with having a debate format like this, and I love you guys and thank you so much for having us here, is we're really just uh, having an opportunity to agree with each other and, and uh, maybe accent a little bit of the, the difference in style. There are you some suck. libertarians. You suck. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But not as often as you. Um, but uh, it, there, there are some libertarians in the race right now that I, I want to kind of position myself 
in terms of policy. People I, I really truly like and I, I enjoy, but, but whose policies would be dangerous to us. There's a candidate who's saying, let's just roll the dice and we'll end Medicare and we'll end Social Security and, and we won't even pay anybody any of the benefits and the country will be just fine. Let me tell you, if we go out on the street right now in this year with, with the damage that has been yeah. done by COVID yeah, and exactly. we tell people that we're going to take all their benefits away from yeah. them and they'll be just fine. Yeah. Not only will we not get ballot access anywhere, we'll be lucky to get 1% of the vote. So we've got to be very careful about the kind of messaging that we buy in the Libertarian Party. It is not principled libertarianism to say, well, we took the money away from you and now you're not going to get anything back. That's anti-NAP if there ever was anything anti -NAP. Oh, that's fraud. That's fraud. You got that right. That is fraud. We have another candidate who is, and, and again, a guy I love, I've spent a lot of time with him, but he's proposing that we break up the federal government, get rid of it, break the country up into 50 separate states and 562 tribal nations. <laughs> now, right now, look how well the COVID response is working with idiots like Gavin Newsom running the state of California, Kate Brown in Oregon, and, and others, these tyrants, are, are, are putting their boots on the neck of the American people, destroying our economy, destroying our liberties, and they're doing it gleefully and taking credit for it. If we don't have, as, as, as Mark correctly said, we need the Constitution. We need the protections. The problem isn't that the Constitution has failed us. The problem is that we've failed the Constitution by right. failing to uphold it. We need somebody in the Oval Office who actually knows what the Constitution says and knows how to interpret it. We need somebody in the Oval Office who can say, you know what? There's a lot of stuff I can't do, but one of the things I can do is I can refuse to use power that doesn't belong to me. I'm not going to use the War Powers Act. I'm not going to declare war as president when that's the, the, the job of, of Congress. If war isn't declared by Congress, we bring the kids home. Uh, and, and similar with the Patriot Act. There's powers granted to the executive in the Patriot Act, but the president doesn't have to use those powers. Executive order to the Department of Justice. Forget about the Patriot Act, folks. We are not going to infringe on the rights of the American people. We're not going to spy on them. We're not going to arrest them, and we're not going to prosecute them without due process. We're not going to do any of those things. And, and the president has the right and he has the authority to return the government to the people, to use the bully pulpit to shine a bright light on the nefarious activities. And trust me when I say, Department of Education was just one example. There are so many examples of things the federal government is doing purely because it's what gets them power. Uh, and, and we could go into a long list, but I'll, I'll make this simple for you. The federal government does not have the constitutional authority for prohibition of just about anything. Uh, Article 1, Section 8, there are no prohibition powers for the federal government. You move into the amendments and you get to the 13th Amendment, prohibition against slavery, against uh, 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 holding people against their, their will and making them do work for you. That would be a power of the, the federal government to enforce. 
but aside from those things that are specifically named in the Constitution, the federal government doesn't have the authority to prohibit drugs. The, the federal government doesn't have the authority to prohibit any kind of behavior to decide what marriage should or should not be or any of those things. Those things are to be decided by the people. And when the federal government puts its boot where it doesn't belong, the rights of the people get eroded. So I, as president, intend to make sure that the states don't behave like they're behaving right now, that the rights of the people get protected, and that the federal government stops acting like somebody's nanny. Really good. I, I'm so moved by that speech. I'm thinking I'm ready I to endorse Ken Armstrong as <laughs> vice president. I, I, I knew where you were going with that. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I like to uh, kind of, well, first I want to thank both of you for being on. Um, I greatly appreciate it. I did get a response from Dan. Uh, he got time zones confused. So he's sitting uh, in a Mexican for. prison. Who's he kidding? <laughs> <laughs> right. Awaiting, awaiting, uh, uh, awaiting uh, uh, deportation to the United States to stand, charge, stand trial for not paying taxes. There you I, go. I, I think Dan's got a Corona issue of his own down there, right? Yeah, yeah that's right? right. That's right. There you go. But uh, I'd like time. to extend an uh, opportunity out to uh, Danielle, kind of give us um, feedback of what she thought about, you know, your guys' answers and, uh, you know, what she thought about the debate in general. Go ahead, Danielle. Honestly, this has been, it's been refreshing to just have like a regular conversation, not one where everybody's like, <sighs> Yeah, so this was really nice, and I appreciate you guys being very respectful and answering all of our questions. And um, thank you, James, for having me on here. You know, occasionally, like I, I really think it's <laughs> and um, this has been enlightening, um, and I've really enjoyed it. All right, I have uh, a feeling and... that in the, I have a feeling that in the future, these sorts of debates are going to be. A, a big part of future libertarian campaigns because you get to know the candidates so much better than these, these, uh, I think they'll still be two dimensional analog meetings in hotel rooms at some point in the future, hotel ballrooms. But, but I think these sorts of debates have been much better for the end users of debates who are going to make decisions in elections. You know? I, I agree. And you know, it, it makes this, uh, this campaign um, accessible to some of the, the less well-funded campaigns. There are some great right. people out there who just can't travel. I've traveled 47 states in this campaign. There's folks who can't afford to do that, and, and, uh, and this makes it available to them. Thanks so much, you guys, for doing this. Now, yep. Thank you guys for being on. It's been a great honor. I don't think in, uh, in a thousand years I would have ever said that I would host a, a presidential debate. So and, I know. Uh, there are people out there just... Uh, People out there just painting the deck today. You guys are right. hosting the presidential debate. Come on. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. So thank you very much for that opportunity. And, uh, you know, all I got to say is uh, stay safe and, uh, you know, yeah, use, use what tongs. we have available. Invent yeah. some stuff. And, and don't, uh, you know, I, I told uh, a few people, I have some family members that are upset about this whole thing that they're not able to get work now and uh you know some of them that were going to school are not able to go to school you know i i tell try not to let that get you down there's still opportunities available right and uh, you know just because you're not going to school 
you, there's still plenty of learning that you can do in the meantime and, and advance yourself without discover government the inner entrepreneur, you, to, you know, exactly. Yep. So, all right, guys, yeah, thank you so here. much. And, uh, this, uh, what I'll do is cause we had some, uh, glitches while we were live and I apologize for those that were watching live. There weren't that many, but, uh, what we'll, what I'll do is once I get the video recording all done, I'll publish that on Facebook, YouTube, yep. and Twitter, and it'll be available for everybody to see. And then it'll also be available in audio format uh, on my podcast next week. So Great. thanks, thank James. So thanks, Danielle. Thanks, you guys. Thank you guys. Thanks, thanks Ken. Take care. See you tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>